everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Dispatch, episode 33. My name is Cameron English. I am your host, as always, joined again, as I usually am, by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, what's going on this lovely afternoon? It's a, it's a winter day on the, on, the sound, on the sound of Long Island, so it's a little gray, but I'll take it. Oh, there you go, man. Just start, think, think of it as a reprieve from the inevitable heat that's coming very, very soon. Yeah, thank God it's not you know seventy-five outside. You know, right? Oh, oh gosh, seventy-five. I don't know how you would tolerate that. Now, meanwhile, you people are the ones that got all the rain. Oh, speaking of which, I, and I've never had this happen to me, by the way, because I'm in California and we have earthquakes. That's yeah. our that's our natural hell. We don't have tornadoes or floods or anything. I was coming home from a, a church event the other day and I'm driving down the road and there's four feet of water up to the crosswalk button that you press in oh order to God. cross the street. <laughs> so oh my, God. my California brain couldn't, couldn't quite process. So I'm like, okay, well I have to do an illegal U-turn here. Uh, but that was flooded too. So I had to drive backwards down the wrong direction on the street and then call 911 because there was a car stuck in the, yeah, it's anyways. Anyway, strange times out here on the West Coast. It's unbelievable. I would have to say on the earthquake part, when in my wasted youth, when I was still living in California, I did go through an earthquake, and there's nothing better than going through an earthquake on, and this will age me, a waterbed. <laughs> did you have a lava lamp next to that waterbed? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I've... um. And you probably remember this, but the earthquake in San Francisco in the, the late 1980s where the Bay Bridge separated. So you had cars falling off of the upper level of the bridge. You know, that's that's yes. quite traumatizing. But you get used to that if you live through if you live through like like something like that. But with flooding, that's a that's a new ballgame for me, at least in Northern California. Anyways, we're done with uh, with our earth science lesson for the day. And uh, Chuck, we're here to talk about uh, asthma in uh, in two interesting stories that you wrote. So the first one, of course, is about this gas stove drama that uh, has recently hit the headlines. And then we're going to talk about marijuana and asthma. So these are these are connected in some in some interesting ways. Um, but let's dive into this gas stove thing. And I'm glad we're doing this because by the time we release this episode, Chuck. I'm I'm assuming the controversy will have died down some and cooler heads will hopefully have prevailed and there yeah. will be some discussion of the data. So yes. launch into this. Tell us what, what generated the controversy and then let's talk about the actual science behind this. Well, interestingly, the controversy was um, begun by Commissioner Trumpka of the Consumer Product Safety Commission um, who uh, felt that if they couldn't make gas stoves safer, based on some studies that he wanted to discuss, they had to be banned. And even though this hit Bloomberg in the middle of January, if you go to the article, I found a clip where he's talking about this back in December with the same line, that if they can't be made safe, they have to be banned. Um, so very strange. So the, what I went and did is I pulled up the article that Bloomberg uh, had cited and that Trumpka had cited to get a better understanding of what it was that they were concerned about. And it was a, an article that purported to show that um, gas stoves were responsible 
for about 13% of asthma among children in the United States. Now, asthma is, a, is an allergic disease primarily. So the best you could ultimately say is that gas dose might be responsible for some percentage of uh, making asthma worse or causing um, asthmatic episodes that require hospitalizations or trips to the ED. But that was not the premise of the article. The premise of the article was that it caused asthma. So right away, we're starting to some skate on some thin ice. So I went and I, and I read the article, and interestingly enough, um, they made use of this concept called uh, population attribution fraction, which is basically um, if you look at a large population and you look at how many people um, have, in this case, asthma and also have a gas stoves versus people that don't have asthma and don't have gas stoves, you, you get a sense of... Um, how much the gas stoves are contributing to the problem. And when I read the article, I discovered that they hadn't discovered any new population attribution fraction. They had actually used one from a, a meta-analysis done several years earlier. So I decided, let me go down the rabbit hole a little bit deeper and see what that article showed. And that article came up with, the, with that attribution factor, but it was very clear that they were not able to show any correlation between uh, NO2, which was the presumptive cause of all these problems, and asthma. And they decided that uh, what they wrote was that gas stoves were somehow a proxy for some other environmental factor, but the gas stoves themselves were not the problem. Now, the, the, the latest article didn't bother to mention any of that. And once you read that, you realize that the whole house of cards mathematically begins to fall apart. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit because it's really interesting how many variables are involved and how the foundation is mostly sand, I, I think. So so here, this is the quote. This is from, the new study is based on old data, which comes from this previous meta-analysis of 41 studies that you cited. So the, I believe their conclusion, this is their conclusion here, you quote. They say, gas, cook uh, gas cooking produces NO2 and other pollutants such as ultrafine particles. Our finding of an association between gas cooking and asthma in the absence of an association between measured NO2 and asthma suggests, and this is the part you highlight, that gas cooking may act as a surrogate for causal variables other than air pollutants pr produced by gas combustion. So in other words, the study that really gave us the data that generated the controversy is saying, we actually didn't find an association between these two things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, and, and here's an interesting aside. Um, I was not the only one to, to dig back to find that article. And the, the gentleman who wrote the article um, came out and said, oh, no, 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 that's not what we found. What we found was that um, that the presence of gas stoves did increase uh, the incidence of asthma, uh, which was another finding in his study. But he, he somehow fails to mention his conclusion uh, in any of, of his rebuttal arguments that he's been making. So there... <laughs> There's a lot going on uh, among the scientific community in terms of being uh, politically correct about their pollutants there. A couple other things we can mention, and then I want to go back to this population uh, attributable fraction and, and talk about the, the sort of mythical math magic that gave us this that result. But you cite a 2001 study in um, 
the AAP's journal, Pediatrics, and they say 44% of asthma was due to residential risk factors, but gas cooking and heating uh, either wasn't mentioned or it wasn't, a, or they weren't significant contributors. So that's important. I've ne- I haven't seen that in any of the news stories I looked up. Right. Um, how you cook makes a difference. The ventilation, are you using a, a, a fan on, on your stove and so forth? There's all of these variables. And then, of course, there's things like smoking and secondhand smoke and all of the other um, uh, behavioral factors that contribute to asthma and so forth. So there's this data is really messy and there doesn't seem to be a clear cut association in the way that people are exposed to these pollutants from gas stoves, right? Like if you do a certain kind of a study, you can show that there clearly is an association between asthma and NO2, for example, but the conditions that people are cooking in might not be, and they probably aren't uh, similar to the conditions in your study. So do you have any thoughts about just you know, all of these different variables. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that there's there's a huge number of variables that, that go into uh, figuring out this problem. But what we can say for sure is that um, probably the biggest drivers are um, a parental uh, atopy, which is in a, a predisp- predisposition to, to allergic reactions, uh, an increased sensitivity to allergens, that's probably the biggest driver is a genetic component. And then depending on where you live is what allergens you ultimately get exposed to. And at that point, it starts to become clear how gas stoves may be a proxy for other factors in the built environment. Um, uh, gas stoves are relatively inexpensive to put into um apartment buildings that may not be as ventilated um, as necessary. Gas stoves are easily put into uh, low-cost housing, which is often uh, co-located next to highways, which have a, their own allergens floating around from the traffic. So there's any number of ways that um, there are other factors that can't be easily subtracted out to uh, find these things. And the other interesting thing that I find about this is that more and more of these studies piggyback upon uh, older surveys and older data sets because it's far too expensive to do a study, a prospective study looking at what causes asthma. It'll take too long to do. So the researchers probably have a vested interest in getting some results out now for their CV, not leaving it to the next generation of researchers to publish the results. And then these are very expensive studies to do. So we kind of just make use of the data we have. That's why um, these meta-analyses don't really have any great data on how many people have gas stoves and how many people eat with gas and so on and so forth. Right. So we're dealing with very, very messy data here. And, um, it, and I want to stress, this doesn't mean there is no association or that, you know, you should turn on your, your gas stove and inhale as deeply as you can, right? No one is saying oh. that. It's just a matter of um, dose and exposure. It always comes back to those two things, right? When you're trying to understand um, your risk of something, right? It's like, how much are you taking it in for how long are you taking it in? That's really fundamentally what you need to know. And it doesn't sound like we can really get at those variables with these sort of epidemiological studies, because you can say, well, you know, this percentage of children has asthma in this particular, um, you know, 
a geographic area, and then there's this many people with with gas stoves or gas heaters. And right. that's basically as as granular as you can get, which is to say, not very granular at all. Right. You wind up with an ecological population-based study, which is very good at suggesting areas to study and very bad at showing causality. Right, right. So this, yeah, as we talked about before, this is sort of like, this is how you establish that there's something that might be worth investigating further. This is not the stuff that should make headlines. This is not the stuff that should be um, the justification for any policy, banning or, you know, ignoring gas stoves or whatever. It's just not... That's not the kind of data you need. I do want to talk briefly about the media response and the political response. Of course, all the politicians, and we talked about this with Barbara uh, Billauer on a recent episode, where no matter what the issue is, Team Red says these things, Team Blue says these things, and what you say determines how close you align with one of those teams. It's always very frustrating. Um, and the media sort of gets in on this too, Chuck. So, for example, I saw a story by the website Vox, and to their credit, my experience with Vox is that they will actually look at the relevant data. You know, they still miss the target. Sometimes they shoot themselves in the face, you know, but they're at least starting with um, the right the right observations. So they looked at the same studies you did and they quoted the conclusions, but critically, they overlooked the major flaws like, oh, yeah, this data is from another study and that data isn't particularly helpful. <laughs> so, yeah. so Vox got the closest to actually discussing what was relevant. But their primary concern was defending the Biden administration and saying, well, you know, the president didn't say they're banning this and this commission is independent and the White House, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't take take what they say as gospel and so on. Right. So that was their focus. And then I saw some articles like like with CNN or CNBC, they would have a bona fide expert on there. I saw one with with a, a a pediatrician from the Harvard School of Public Health. And he was more qualified in what he was saying, but even he didn't get to the heart of your of the issue, which your article did. So I find found that you know very frustrating. It seems like there's this desire to you know hyperbolize what's going on, or at least to evade the the the, the key issue, which is that you know yeah maybe there's something here, but you know don't don't lose sleep over your gas stove. It's not that big of a deal. So what do you think? I I, I think you're a hundred percent. Correct in that. I, I think it's very difficult, um, as I look at it, for to write and debunk um, a scientific paper. It can't usually be done in a soundbite or in a quotable quote uh, to do that. You really, if you're being fair to the the science, then you have to get kind of dig in and find the problem. And with with looking at this, you really had to go back and look at their citations and read their citations and see what was going on. That's why um, I ended by, by saying that, um, at least from the point of view of our, our political leadership, um, they need to be able to do something more than get a briefing on something or read the abstract and say, okay, now well, let's go regulate. Um, they need to be able to have uh, the ability to read the, the science themselves. And if they're not able to do that, then they get somebody to come in and can spend an hour walking them through what it is that they, they're, they're seeking to resolve. I think that that's a, they're not, they're not meeting their fiduciary requirement uh, to the people that put them in office. And, and, and I think that remains a problem. The media does this because, you know, come on, that's the nature of the media beast. They like doing that. In fact, once it gets going, it will take on a life of its own. One of the, the nice 
pieces I saw this week was the, the conspiracy by big gas to keep gas stoves. Because if you had a gas stove, then you were more than likely to have gas heat. And that's where they made their money. So this was, you know, all once again, just a, a conspiracy um, to to ruin our health and, and take our money. Yes. Yeah. The, the big gas conspiracy, uh, gas stoves are a loss leader in order to really hook you on yes. big gases, uh, you know, heating appliances. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. One, one final thing I want to mention, then we can talk about pot and asthma. It seems to me, Chuck, and tell me if you disagree with this, that everybody sort of has an incentive to keep the, the fear mongering alive. So you just mentioned the media, they get clicks which means ad revenue when there's a scary story that they can report to their readers or their viewers or what have you. Um, all of the nonprofit groups that work in public health, I call them the body part groups, American lung, American uh, heart, American cancer, so forth, right? These groups, and I'm not saying you can dismiss their conclusions out of hand because of this, but they have an incentive to keep this discussion in the headlines because then they get funding to do more campaigns and to do more research and so forth. Cause most of these groups get some public money from federal agencies that look at these issues and the federal agencies have an incentive to support what these groups say publicly because they get more funding from Congress. Exactly. And then the politicians, of course, they have an incentive to keep this going uh, or to deny it outright because that, that's what their constituents are going to respond to, right? So everybody in this discussion has some incentive to keep fighting about it in some capacity because there's a financial or political benefit in doing so. So before we move on, give me your final take on that. Absolutely true. I mean, I, I started by by quoting the two politicians that I thought uh, were the most interesting. You know, Senator Booker, who, who got the ball rolling by sending a letter uh, to the CPSC, asking them to get in there and regulate gas stoves based on what he had been told. So that we have that because he can garner headlines from that and he can move himself up into the Democratic leadership with these kinds of things. And then, of course, the eminently quotable Governor DeSantis of Florida, who actually, I, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but I'll say it anyway, took a page out of President Trump's uh, playbook and after making a political stand against gas stoves, launched a line of don't tread on Florida aprons on his campaign website, which immediately sold out. So he took advantage of the moment to increase his campaign coffers. Uh, you know, the, the, the new influencers of our planet. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, you know, and the, I knew this is kind of cynical of me, but you almost have to admire that sort of gusto that, that what you're going to do here is you're going to, I'm going to sell some aprons. <laughs> and and I, I would hasten to say that this is not isolated to the Republican side of the aisle. Klinziger, uh, Congressman Klinziger was selling autographed copies of the January 6th report. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a whole new a whole new line of products that we can purchase yeah 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 there's an insurrection sign up for my newsletter it's uh it's really funny that 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 goes on but um there you go i hope that gives people at least a little bit of grounding so they can approach this uh with a little more information instead of you know being bamboozled by whoever's got something to gain from this controversy now speaking of controversy chuck pot may contribute to asthma 
And we're sort of dealing with the same issues, right? We're looking at uh, ecologic data. Uh, you know, this is heavily political because you're talking about, a, you know, a recently decriminalized drug in a lot of places. So tell us about this. Well, this is a study looking at whether um, there's been a change in uh, the prevalence of asthma in a pediatric population with uh, the institution of uh, legalization of marijuana for medical uses or for recreational uses. And so they made use of uh, the National Survey of Children's Health and compared the prevalence of asthma as self-reported uh, in that study, they matched it up with how their states had changed um, their marijuana laws. And what they found was that across the board, the prevalence of pediatric asthma has decreased over the time frame, about a 12% reduction between 2011 and 2019. But there were areas where um, asthma increased, and those increases... Um, were in areas where marijuana had been legalized to some degree. To a small extent where, where the laws had changed in terms of medical marijuana, but to a larger extent in the uh, states where recreational marijuana laws had been enacted. Uh, they found that it, it came across um, all ethnicities. And that when you looked at it, um, in terms of age, it was the 12 to 17-year-old group that seem to have a, a higher incidence of uh, asthma in the states that we're allowing for cannabis. So they, while they, again, they at least acknowledged it was an exploratory study and you couldn't draw any conclusions, they suggested that legalization of adult cannabis use may be related to increasing asthma prevalence. And so that raises the specter of how that might be. And there would be two possible reasons for that. Um, first would be secondhand cannabis smoke, um, which I, I have a problem uh, seeing happening, though I suppose it can. And, and the other interesting fact I found was that um, across the U.S., the general U.S. population, about 17% of the population smoke. When you look strictly at people with asthma, that incidence rises to 21%. You think about that for a minute. People with asthma smoke more tobacco than, than people without. What lunacy is that? <laughs> but given that lunacy, and then when you start looking at the 12 to 17 age group where the increase was, things start to become a little clearer that maybe what you're actually seeing is that the 12 to 17-year-olds are, are, are vaping pot or smoking pot. Um, because that's the age when everybody wants to experiment and find out what's going on. Okay. So a couple, couple of things to talk about here and I have to, uh, full disclosure here, I hate marijuana culture. I'm a pretty conservative religious guy, not, not politically necessarily, but just, you know, just a reserve, hey. you know, so, so I have, I have a strong desire for this study to be correct, <laughs> you know, fair enough. But that said, but that said, I'm going to do what we try to tell other people to do and say, let's let's look at the numbers. So one thing you point out here, which I thought was very, very helpful, is you say 
in this study you're talking about, there was no adjustment for cigarette smoking, a critical driver of respiratory diseases, everybody well knows. And we have no information on whether cannabis was smoked, vaped, or ingested. That's really critical for people to know, right? I mean, on top of the fact that this is ecological, so you don't have great exposure data, um, you yeah. know, there's there's really important variables that you need to, to keep in mind here. So, so again, this seems plausible because as you've pointed out before, if you inhale combustion products, whatever they happen to be, <laughs> there's probably going to be some sort of a respiratory issue. So talk about that. Uh, uh, well, that part is, is definitely true. You know, right. when you inhale combustible fumes, things will happen to your lungs that we're just not designed to inhale fire and fiery <laughs> products. <laughs> so there, there's that piece to it. And I, I, I think that, um, like the gas stoves, legalization of marijuana is a proxy for a, a, a host of other uh, issues, especially behaviors, um, that may make a difference. Um, remember, and, well, and, and I think to, 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 to buttress your position, there's an argument to be made that the uh, increased prevalence of asthma uh, in states where medical marijuana was legalized, where you had to get a prescription from a physician, uh, those rises were not anywhere near as great as the increase where marijuana was legalized. And I think that legalization of marijuana um, clearly gives permission um, to those over 21 and tacitly gives permission to those under 21, especially that 12 to 17 age group, that this is okay and there doesn't seem to be any harms. Um, the pendulum has gone to the other extreme. We've gone from reefer madness of 1930, which I guess is closer to my age group, um, to the idea that, you know, it, it, what up, man, it's all good. And as with anything else, um, there is um, a component to marijuana use that is open to abuse. Certainly true. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that spectrum, you know, and Reefer Madness, incidentally, is hilarious. Everyone should watch that. It's, it's really entertaining. Um, but the pendulum has swung. And I think that's what I find so annoying about this whole discussion. You know, so I have neighbors, for example, out here in, you know, wacky tacky California, uh, you know, seven, 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> hey. they're, they're out in their garage waking and baking. Exactly. I know now, if I was thing. now, if I was out there with my with my young son running around, cracking open a Pabst, people would go, what's wrong? that guy said? What kind of father is that? Right. But, you know, if you have a giant bong and you're taking a huge rip to start your day, well, you know. It's hey. all good, as Chuck just said. <laughs> Come on, it's Sunday. You got to relax, man. Time <laughs> to chillax. Chillax. <laughs> oh yeah, another of my pet peeves. Just combining words that don't belong together. But, okay, you know, but you know, as I said, the, the marijuana legalization train has left town. Yes, this is a huge. This can be a huge source of revenue uh, for the governments. And they're all eyeing that because it is a tax that nobody notices. It's a sin tax. Uh, and so they're all kind of jumping on the, the bandwagon. Interestingly enough, just as, a, as an aside, um, the first legal uh, weed store opened in Manhattan 
um, two weeks ago. And it's fairly onerous to get a permit, and it's expensive to have a license. In the meantime, there are 1,400 smoke shops in Manhattan that are selling it anyway, where they're not paying the taxes, they don't have the license, and now all of a sudden uh, the city is in a dilemma. They don't want to crack down on them because most of these uh, stores are run by um, people that require social justice. Um, (laughs) But they got this one store in Manhattan that paid a lot of money and Uh, looking around saying, why do we bother to pay? (laughs) <laughs> along the loss of tax revenue and they just do, they, they they promise they're going to enforce things but they they just don't have any way to do it <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> very well said dr dennerstein yeah this is the this is the perennial issue with prohibition right is that you have to you have to regulate things in such a way that you are supposedly at least giving the impression that you're protecting public health without turning into a police state where everybody hates you and you're squandering all your resources trying to solve a problem you can't solve. So and, that's- and I, I throw in one more, uh, your home state, California, Colorado, Washington, it is very difficult to set the right price point uh, for the legal uh, marijuana based on, on tax because they don't want to make the tax so high that they price themselves out of the market and the black market takes over and continues selling with abandon because in, in none of these states um, is the, what would now be the gray market um, gone by any strength of imagination, because like, like buying cigarettes on the, on the reservation, there's no taxes on it. So they're less expensive. Mm-hmm. This is uh, again, these are the dilemmas of prohibition, right? It's uh, it's something worth keeping in mind. Read, read economics. I think that's an important lesson that we've, maybe we've mentioned before read economics. Because then you can have a you'll have a, you'll understand this better than the people in charge of your life. <laughs> okay, so I, I think always Chuck, the takeaway just seems to be slow down when you see things in the headlines. Do your best to look at the data, or at least reach out to someone. Like you can email us at ACSH, and uh, we we can help explain these things, right? But let let cooler heads prevail. That's I think that's just the best thing we can tell people. Yep. Fair enough. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you for joining us as always. Uh, If you want to get these stories we talk about, go to our website, acsh.org. Click on the subscribe tab up top, punch in your email address, and that'll put you on our Science Dispatch newsletter. We'll send you the stories we publish. And then when you come to the show, you're going to know what we're talking about. So you'll get a little bit more out of it. And with that, we will see you next week for episode 34 of the Science Dispatch podcast. We'll see you then. (laughs) 